Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby, and this is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Today is energy, the missing function of economics. Economists have traditionally spoken of the labor theory of value, including Marx, of course, who basically equated the cost of producing anything as a mix of the effort that's put in by the workers plus the cost of the capital, the machinery that's required to make the stuff. The capitalists skim the extra hours the workers did beyond their own needs and made a nice profit out of all of it. That was the theory. But in a number of podcasts, Steve has highlighted that there's a missing element in that basic theory. What's powering those machines? So Steve, energy has to be part of the equation. So how did Marx and uh, and all the rest of them, how did they miss that one? Well, it's actually very important. It is all the rest as well, because um, right from Adam Smith, actually, people see Adam Smith as the father of economics. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't think of him a decent analogy. He's a decent man. So I, the idea about the guy who leaves the family and uh, leaves them bereft is maybe a bit too harsh. But he's the guy who just misled us from the actual only group that got it initially right, which is the physiocrats across in France. And they did say uh, that the only way production occurs is courtesy of the free gift of the sun. And uh, that, that's, you know, in, in terms of what we knew about energy and the sources of energy we had back in, uh, in France in the 1700s and even going back to the 1600s when this, this particular school of writing began, uh, they were correct. That was the only correct statement ever had. And along comes Adam Smith, who actually went to, um, went to France to uh, tutor a, a young, uh, a wealthy Sion over there and also to learn as much as he could from the physiocrats. Not, I don't actually know if he actually met Canet, who was the leading physiocrat, but he certainly was influenced by them, read their material, and, and met some of the active uh, members of the physiocratic group. Uh, but he came back and said, oh, it's not uh, energy. He didn't actually explicitly say it's not energy. He said it's the division of labour that gives rise to wealth. And so we start with a particular process where there's one person making a nail and we divide it down into 15 different processes and those 15 people make 15,000 nails in the time that one person would make uh, make 100 nails, that sort of argument. And then Marx, and then, then there was a whole question about where does profit come from? And in that situation, Smith really didn't have an answer. Uh, Ricardo, Ricardo had a, a half answer, but he couldn't explain uh, why there was a, a difference between what was paid to the worker and what was paid to the capitalist. And Marx finally said, well, the difference comes out of the fact that the, uh, anybody, any other commodity uh, being used in production is just sold uh, for its, um, uh, it's sold as a commodity and used as a commodity. He said labor is purchased as, you, you, what you pay for is called labor power, which is the capacity to work. What you get is labor, the actual performance of work. And he said that the uh, the gap, but labour power is reproduced by giving a, a worker enough to stay alive, and that's it. Mm. Uh, whereas labour can go on for longer, so it might take six hours to make the means of subsistence. It'll take twelve. Uh, the worker gets to work a twelve-hour day, courtesy of the labour contract, and that six hours additional labour is the source of profit for the capitalist. And the machinery plays no role. 
and I'll, I'll elaborate on that as we go along. But that was its starting position. And then the neoclassicals responded and said, well, it's actually not true to say that labor is the only source of value. It's the marginal product of labor and capital that determine the price at which things are produced. So they each have a, each labor and capital each contribute to production uh, in a competitive market. What the, the price falls to is the, mar- the, 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 the price for all labor sold and all capital sold is now equal to the marginal product of each of those inputs. Now, in the middle of all this total flurry of the debates over um, labor's, uh, whether, whether labor is the only contributor to surplus and uh, whether the machinery adds anything at all, they completely forgot the role of energy. It just disappeared from the planet, which is a problem because if it did disappear from the planet in reality, there wouldn't be a planet. But was it was it because they were treating energy as as part of that cost of capital? Were they saying, well, it's it's a cost like a machine? So uh, a machine, for example, has components that last for a certain period of time. So mm-hmm. is that any different, for example, to, to a tank of fuel, which only lasts for a certain period of time? That was a sort of – I mentioned this the background thinking that's going on. Anybody who's of, of my vintage uh, may remember if, if their first year economics textbooks uh, would describe the, um, that the, the, there were four uh, means, of, means of production. There was land, labour, capital and enterprise. That was – I still remember this crap from my, <laughs> my first year uh, university days. But there were these four factors, land, labour, capital, enterprise. Now – over time, the neoclassical theory has refined out of their discussion land and enterprise, leaving themselves just with labour and capital. So it's been a, a process. And, and then I have had one of my funniest interactions with a, a person with a PhD in economics actually came when I was giving a presentation uh, on behalf of the CSIRO. Those who don't know Australia, that's, that's Australia's lead, was Australia's leading uh, pure research institution. It's now been totally bastardised. Uh, by turning into a competitive bloody institution over the last 10 to 15 years and almost destroyed. But uh, back then it was into pure research. And uh, I was asked to give a presentation for the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation to the United Nations Environment Program in Bangkok uh, about the what was likely to happen to resource use in resource availability in Southeast Asia if current growth trends were continued. And, um, and as part of that, uh, I was with another a person who's a leading researcher in energy, energy role in economics. And we were both talking about the, you know, essential role of energy. And this uh, chief economist for the United Nations Environment Program piped up and said, oh, if we need more energy, we can just make it by combining labour and capital. And he, my colleague and I both looked at each other and then turned and said, so you believe in perpetual motion machines, do you? Mm. And he went, what? And I said, sorry, mate, you cannot make energy. That is the first law of thermodynamics. What is exists. So it's, it's, they've, 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 by a sequence of debating ploys between each of these different schools of economics over time, we've lost sight of the essential uh, understanding that physiocrats had and no other school of economics since has had uh, until the ecological school developed recently. Uh, that energy is absolutely crucial, and without it, nothing can be produced. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because before we had industry, uh, we had agriculture, and the, the cycles of the economy then were almost certainly determined by uh, by the seasons, which were uh, dependent on the uh, the activity of the sun. So, uh, you know, it was it was very clear in those days, wasn't it? 
Well, that's one of the reasons I think it was divided in by the physiocrats and lost by the English, because the physiocrats being based in France, when they were writing, France was overwhelmingly an agricultural nation. It was far more successful, a feudal state in that sense, than the English, where uh, the, the king managed to lose his head on regular occasions. It wasn't until the final, you know, out, off with his head guillotine stuff that uh, that was the end of the French uh, feudal system. But in that system, the vast majority of people were caught up in agriculture in some way. And if you were a farmer, you knew that... But if you put one corn, uh, one one grain of corn, one grain of wheat in the soil, and you know, watered and tended it for a long enough time, uh, then you'd be you'd harvest ten thousand off the off the plant that would grow off it. So the and where did it come from? It had to come from the land. And if you had any slightly uh, deep rational capacity, you would say, well. What does that land is doing is absorbing the energy coming from the sun, mm. and therefore, and so therefore, that's the essential role of energy. Now, when you go to um, in this, you think about Smith, uh, Smith's uh, um, um, Wealth of Nations, published in 1776. The first what steam engine, which is not the first steam engine by any means, but the first one with a governor, and they could therefore be used very reliably uh, to pull uh, to, to to power. Pump, eventually pumping water out of coal mines and then finally the power spinning jennies and the whole industrialization of England. That, that I think, was 1759, uh, of 1769, a short while before Smith wrote his book. And you'd already had a lot of industrialization in England uh, running out of using wood, um, some use of coal, lots and lots of use of, uh, of, of water mills. And that industrial, uh, what you then had was the, the growth of you know, specialised manufacturing. So in, in one sense, the source of value was more obscure to the more advanced country. It was more obvious to the less advanced where agriculture was still the rule. So this is an issue because it's a limit, because it's a limited resource. Anything else, I mean, labour is limited, obviously, by the number of, by the number of people. Uh, capital has less limitations, but it's uh, but but you're saying it's the, the, the it's a limit to growth. In, in which case, it's sort of nothing new, because of course the Club of Rome were banging on about this in the 1970s that the economy can only grow so fast because there's only uh, you know so many resources to go around. So whether we're talking well, about energy or resources, isn't it the same sort no, of issue? No, no, no. Res- energy is uh, is very special because. Um, the limits to, re- to growth is saying that if we, if we, and I've actually just written a post about that for patrons today um, in response to a question from Andre uh, last week. Um, yeah, the limits to growth are saying that not just the, the potential to run out of physical resources on the planet, but also the, the feedback effects of pollution, mm. degradation, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, if, even if we didn't have run out of resources, we could have feedbacks affecting the sustainability of life on the planet. That's different to saying whether you can produce output with or without um, energy. And in that sense, we could produce far more output if we could actually just harness the energy of the sun falling on the planet and harness use that for production. We could produce 100 times what we're producing right now. Uh, there's that much energy that is not being turned into industrial output. So the energy issue is separate. And important because if you get that one wrong everything else is wrong as well and that's one of the problems with modern economics not just uh, neoclassical but even post-Keynesian and certainly Marxian uh, they get everything wrong by leaving out the most essential element of what it makes it possible to produce in the first place. Right. Except for the fact they would be considering it, as I said earlier, wouldn't they just be saying it's a cost, like a machine is a cost, and energy is a cost. And, uh, I mean, you said it yourself, you know, there's, a, we, there's li- a limitless supply of energy as long as the sun keeps shining. It's just the cost of tapping it, which is the the, the significant factor. 
No, it's, it's more It's more that um, if you're trying to explain what causes growth and where does growth come from and what are the relationship between economic growth and the state of the ecology and so on, if you don't get the energy thing right first off, you'll stuff up all the way down the line. And that's because everything else, like if you, you, can, you can even produce people, okay? Mm. Um, okay. It is, I've, you, I, I've been involved in that process myself. I know <laughs> you have. Yeah, you haven't sold them yet, though. You know, you're, you're missing out on a, a nice profit there. Uh, but th- this is the thing. That we, every other input can be produced. Mm. Um, you cannot produce energy. Right. That, that is the huge difference. Okay, like land, even you know, land, you can reclaim land if you like. If you have the, uh, there are resources which we, we 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 literally know we can. You know, if you need some more uranium or some more gold, uh, you just collide a couple of you know massive. <laughs> use that particle accelerator, you can make it. But it's going to cost you energy, right. and that that is the thing you cannot make energy. And then you also have the whole story about the degradation of energy over time, because we, we actually simply we don't just destroy it when we use it. We change its form from high frequency to low frequency, and that's partly where global warming itself comes from. Um, so uh, so there's a, a necessity for, for the entropy to strike as well. Now all these things are something which flow out of giving energy a, the unique role it must have to understand production. You simply can't reduce it to something else. Right. But, it's, I mean, energy is there. It's just a question of how you tap it. And, you know, admittedly, the more you use, uh, I can see that there's going to be diminishing returns. It's going to be more expensive to get hold of more energy once you've tapped the easy sources. But so long as, as I say, so long as the sun is shining, in theory, we've got a limitless supply of energy, haven't we? We, ha- we well, we have, but even the, there's two extremes to this. One, one is that once you, if you acknowledge the role of energy properly, you get a much better handle on what's actually caused economic growth, and and what the impact that is ecologically as well. And that's right. that's the first point. So you're saying about. the availability the availability of energy has driven economic growth. Yeah, and yeah. this this is what I the way that I, I first I mean I, this has been obvious of course, but working it out in terms of getting a mathematical equation that states this in a incontrovertible way, uh, that's come about in a fairly tortuous process because uh, the neoclassicals their their preferred model of production is what's called the Cobb-Douglas production function, and that says output is a function of capital and labour, and they set it up in such a way that if you double the amount of capital uh, or double the amount of labour. Uh, well, you double if you keep the proportion constant, double both. You double output, constant returns to scale. So in that situation, they'll say output is some function of labour raised to some power, uh, like you know point uh, seven multiplied by capital raised to one minus that power, like say point three, and they then fit that to the data. Now, when they did that, and they said, well, what actually causes change in output? Is it change in labour or change in capital? What are the relative contributions of the two? They found that only fifteen percent, I think it was of the change in output could be explained by a change in capital or change in labour. 85% of it was unexplained. And this is known as the solo residual. It's been around for a long time. Now, the first attempts to build a production equation that included energy were done by Bob Ayers, who's a good friend these days, and a, a physicist who actually invented the term of externality many, many decades ago, but as a, a non-orthodox, econophysics-oriented uh, thinker with a PhD in physics. Uh, Bob and uh, a colleague, uh, uh, Kummel, came up with what they call the Linux function, and that basically says, well, the production is a function of labour, capital, and energy, and the sum, in, when you're doing constant returns to scale, they had raised to the powers of alpha, beta, and one minus alpha minus beta, so the same constant returns to scale applies. That uh, fitted the data much better. 
but I was always dissatisfied with that because it did imply that if you set the exponent for energy equal to zero, you could still have production. Mm. And I thought, this, this is just nonsense. You can't have production without energy. So I was actually staying in both places in France one day, and this little brainwave hit me out of the blue. And, and that was the little thought bubble that labor without energy is a corpse and capital without energy is, is a sculpture. Right. It may have helped. It may have helped that Bob's house is full of sculptures. I've got a feeling that's <laughs> and, and that's, a bottle of wine as well, no doubt. Uh, yeah, there's and, a few uh, of those. A few hell, of those. Hell with yeah, that yeah. thinking. Yeah, but I mean, it, but it's true. So you've got to have. You can't have zero energy. But I'm, st- yeah. I'm, I'm st- still confused as to why. So clearly, it's an important input. No. But- it, it, yeah. Okay. Sorry. You, you carry on then. Sorry, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just saying. Clearly, it, it's an input to any equation about uh, what makes the economy tick. But you know, there's lots of other factors, obviously, which which are influential as well. I'm still struggling with why uh, okay. is it why it's not just considered as a cost uh, and and accept the fact that there's a there's a ceiling and you know the cost the cost will increase the more that you get close to that ceiling. Well, it's not a cost. It's 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 it, we are we are we are energy miners. Yeah. This this is the thing. If we if we weren't mining energy, we wouldn't even exist. And and this is why it's so crucial. If you don't get that right, everything else becomes useless. Frankly. So, well, I just want to carry on for my little uh, sculpture and, and corpse observation to say what the next couple of steps were to integrate it, and that's to say that labour and capital are effectively means of harvesting energy. Right. Okay. Okay. We are living. We are, we are fundamentally living on the labour of energy slaves. Mm-hmm. We don't realise that's what that's how we actually get the wealth, the level of standard living we have these days. So you say, how do labour and capital harness energy? Well, simple. You you harness energy by going out and having one of those bottles of wine and hopefully some some protein and carbohydrate as well, bulking up to four thousand calories for the day, and then hopping on your bike and riding wealthy people around the uh, around around the town in which you live. Uh, you know, mechanical Uber style. So you humans can take in about say four thousand calories. They need, if they're working hard, at least say two thousand of those to stay alive. The other two thousand calories ah, right. is is useful work. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now that's that's the ceiling. That's as you know, Arnie Schwarzenegger might be able to eat six thousand and do twelve. If you go back and watch the old, uh, was that original movie he made his claim to fame in um, the- uh, Conan the Barbarian? Right. Kind of the bubble, okay, with the one man turning the wheel took over the work of 12 turning a wheel. Uh, what you're really doing, what anybody who's exploiting labour or any other form of productive uh, material is doing, is using it to exploit available energy and turn it into useful work. Now, so that's, that's a very deep insight. So GDP, I redefine as useful work. Right. And, and labour being one of the sources, but the amount, how much useful work can labour, can a worker do per day? Probably the order of 2,000 calories a day. Then you say, what can a machine do? Well, then the, the argument the machine can take in much, much more energy. Uh, the first James Watt steam engine, I have no idea the amount of, of, uh, of coal that it took in uh, to actually power, but you'd imagine it might have been burning, say, 100 kilos of coal a day. That's its energy throughput. And then with that energy throughput, it could, it could pump out water out of mines. It could turn spinning jennies, et cetera, et cetera. If you fast forward to now, what is the 
the energy throughput of the most powerful machine on the planet. I saw a lovely interview with uh, the Australian astronaut, I've forgotten his name now, but one of the uh, few Australians actually been up to the space shuttle and back, and he said on that flight, which I think lasted all of eight minutes, he said the amount of, of fuel being consumed by the rocket to propel them up to the space station, I think was either nine or 12 tonnes of oil, tonnes of fuel uh, per second. Yeah. So we're, we're gone from 100 kilos a day of coal to uh, to 10 tons of of you know high performance uh, rocket fuel a second over the last 200 years. And fundamentally, that increase in the amount of energy that we harness, combined with the efficiency with how we do it, that's been the source of growth. So that unexplained factor in the solo and in, in the um, neoclassical uh, equation for output is fundamentally the contribution of energy. So energy is one of the major contributors to wealth. Uh, the only. No, the, no the only, sorry, sorry. The only, the contrib- only, contrib- only contributor to wealth. This, this, I, this, this, funny this. enough, I was going to say that, and I felt uncomfortable saying it, but okay. So energy is the only contributor to wealth, and you just said humans are not very efficient at using energy to create yeah. wealth. Machines are far better at it, uh, perhaps explaining why we're seeing machines doing more and more. Exactly, and it's also why uh, why we're so much wealthier than we were back then. Even if you if you you know you've got enormous disparities in income and wealth, of course, across the planet. But if you look at the the median human um, consumption of energy now versus consumption of energy two hundred years ago, the increase in the amount of energy throughput we're actually able to experience is of the order of ten and twenty times what was going around two centuries ago, three centuries ago. So, and we don't even think about the, uh, if you hop on the on the train to visit, come up and visit me in London, you don't think about the amount of energy. You probably will next time you hop on the bloody train, but you don't think about the amount of energy you're consuming compared to what was necessary for somebody to make the same journey 200 years ago. Yeah. No, actually, you normally think about how much it's costing and is Steve Keen worth it? Is, yeah, uh, absolutely. The thought, the thought yeah. As I buy that ticket. But does it mean then that if we just push to create more or tap more energy, we are going to create wealth because there's more energy available? But then, then, then we have the feedback effects, which is the second stage, because there's only so much the energy that the ecosphere can absorb beyond which it already takes from from the sun and pumps out through solar through radiating heat back and back into the atmosphere again. That's why we're dumping this waste heat into the planet. Now, this is completely independent of the whole issue about global warming. No. Uh, if if global warming were not even a factor, so if the if the planet had absolutely no global warming effect, in which case the temperature average temperature of the surface, I think would be between minus 20 and minus 30 degrees Celsius, roughly a bad day in London, um, then that, in, in that circumstance, our energy output on the planet in about 250 years would be sufficient to boil water. Right. And we're seeing that in cities. So cities are several degrees warmer than they used to be because there's more oh. people in them. There's more machines. We're creating, you know, more air conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. We're creating more heat um, because, we're, because we're using up more energy. Uh, and that, but that, then again, part of our, our source of wealth has actually been that increase in energy. And there's a very, actually, there's a wonderful lot when I'm taking some of the data about what would happen if we extrapolate current trends forward from a wonderful blog post uh, from a blog called Do the Math by, by a Physicist. And the post is called, I think, Finite Physicist Meets Exponential Economist. And this guy pointed out that if, first of all, if you take a look at the uh, level of energy 
being consumed per capita in America, and there's data on this going back to about 1,750 or thereabouts, and you extrapolate that forward and plot it against GDP, you find it's got almost perfect fit. And it's of the the increase in GDP each year has been due to about a two percent increase in per capita energy consumption per year, and the only declines have been periods like the Great Depression and now when we, because of our financial crisis, we stop improving our capacity to harness that free energy. So that's that's the relationship between energy and GDP. But the other side of it was is that if you extrapolate that use of energy and say, can we continue expanding our energy use at the rate of 2% per capita indefinitely? The answer is that by if we keep on doing it and we do our production on the surface of the, of the earth, then I think, I think it was 250 or either 250 or 450 years that the waste heat generated by that process without any global warming uh, would mean the average temperature of the planet would go from minus 40 or minus 30 as it would be without global warming (coughs) to 100 degrees Celsius, enough to boil water. Another few hundred years after that, or even less, uh, the surface temperature of the planet would exceed that of the sun. And if you kept on using this amount of energy, then about 2,000 years, we'd, we'd be using more than the energy output of the galaxy. So in other words, we cannot sustain this indefinite increase in energy. But having said that, the amount of energy we can still exploit there if we rearrange where we produce our stuff off planet, frankly, uh, we can still have a very, very comfortable future for the whole of humanity. But it, it's not a diet linear relationship, though, is it? Because we use energy, <clears throat> we use energy in different ways. So, for example, you gave the example, you know, that uh, what we've got uh, two thousand ca- calories of, of spare calories per day, perhaps that we can use for work. Those two thousand calories, when you were, you know, I think you said you were, you know, pushing a, a bike around town with uh, a wealthy uh, 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 industrialist sitting uh, or, or capitalist sitting in the seat behind, counting his money while you slogged hard. Um, that's not a great use of of energy. Whereas these days, you know, in the you know, we're using our brains, using less energy, but still creating wealth. Well, I think it's actually um, the the fundamental thing there is that is the, taking that person in a bicycle is a damn easier than putting him on your shoulders and trying to walk with them sitting on you. Um, so the the you get a multiplicative impact out of combining labour with capital. This is why the multiplicative form of the uh, Cobb Douglas production function makes sense because the amount of you know if you've got two thousand calories to spare and you've got to carry a heavy bugger um, on your shoulders, you're only going to get so far before you collapse. Uh, if you take them on a bike, you can take them from you know pretty much one side of London to the other. Right, but so, a bit, but a bit of I'm a sitting, yeah. sitting at a computer, uh, yeah. writing stuff that is somehow creating wealth. Um, you know, that's using a lot less energy. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, we've well, we've, we've now we've, this is why again I think it's important to get the role of energy correct in the first instance because we normally get involved in these discussions about whether workers are exploiting capitalists or capitalists are exploiting workers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The truth is we're both exploiting free energy, yeah. and what if you're able to sit away and and type up words as I do, of course, for a living, uh, and we do that. Uh, we're being supported by the energy slaves that we're getting a share of by our presence in a modern capitalist economy. And our, the pay rate gives us access to that to those energy slaves. So it is really, you're not producing, you're consuming, and so am I. Um, the, the energy is being produced by people who are directly involved in mining that energy. And then when you look at what happens with various forms of production, in every case, uh, what you can interpret what's going on in a particular field of production, like, for example, textiles, is turning useful, turning energy into useful work 
to produce far more output than we could if we didn't use the same amount of energy. And that gives you a degree of homogenization between industrial sectors, which doesn't apply if you if you do the the post-Keynesian thing, the, the Sraffingan economic argument that labor, the capital is, is very uh, non-homogenous. So you can't add uh, a machine like a, you can't add a, um, a computer to a, uh, a, um, a drill because they're such different things. But if you then say, well, they're both involved in harnessing energy to produce output in a particular um, sector, then there's, in fact, a homogenization uh, out of that, which makes it more possible to do the adding up uh, than it was otherwise. So, again, I think this insight about the role of energy helps transform a whole lot of economic theory. Um, that's getting a bit esoteric for the discussion here. But the reality is still that uh, we are really living. Uh, we, we, we think we're a capitalist nation. We're actually a slave nation where the slaves are lumps of coal and oil. <laughs> right. Just one final point then. Presumably, we are also underpaying for it because you made the point oh, that there's a there's a there's a feedback loop here so it's not limitless which i've said a, you know a few times you know yes. that we can harness the sun because you said we we're going to fry ourselves alive so there's a there's a uh, the, there's a point at which uh, and in, and here it is a bit like pollution isn't it you know that uh, we're, we're polluting the planet and not necessarily paying for it similarly we're consuming energy and not necessarily paying a reflective price given that there is a constraint on it and, and that's one reason why I don't see things like, a, you know, carbon prices will solve uh, the ecological crisis, because fundamentally, if you paid the full cost of energy, you'd, you'd lose money. Right. So the only only way we actually make a profit is because energy comes to us free. And there's never going to be a way. If you, and this is, again, with the second law of thermodynamics uh, strike. There's a, a wonderful satirical statement of these laws uh, by C.P. Snow, the old the uh, physicist who was also a novelist in England back in the 1920s and 30s. And he said the, the laws of thermodynamics can be summarized in the following way. A, uh, you can't win. <laughs> okay. B, That's a good start. Okay. B, you can't, you can't even break even. And C, you can't leave the game. Right. Now, that's paraphrasing. A, you can't neither create nor destroy energy. It's a fixed amount of it. B, the energy will degrade by use over time. That's the, sec that's the second law of the two, the law of entropy. And the only way you can actually evade that is by finding somewhere in the universe in which you can dump all the waste heat generated which the, where the temperature is absolute zero and there is no such place. Right, which is why, which is why this is where you start uh, talking spaceman talk and uh, say we have to start dumping yeah. it elsewhere in the universe. All right, okay. Indeed, that's right. If we dump it off the planet, uh, we get about a two hundred and fifty um, Celsius increase in the two hundred and seventy Celsius increase in the amount of energy we can actually exploit. And uh, last time I checked, there was no NIMBY movement. Uh, uh, floating between Mars and Venus. <laughs> Yet. All right, very good. Well, look, there's people heading over to Mars. Maybe we just need to uh, give them a container vessel of our first first uh, uh, container of waste. Uh, I'm not sure how you you bottle heat. That's the only question, but uh, I'm sure mm. we'll find out to that one. Anyway, good to talk. I, we, I'm sure we will revisit this subject. Uh, wealth, equ energy equals wealth. Nothing else. That's a simple equation. Even I can understand that one. Thanks, Steve. Applied wealth. Welcome. <laughs> well, it took a while, didn't it? But I think we got there in the end. Uh, interesting stuff, isn't it? That is the Debunking Economics podcast. This one's for free. So uh, if you're not normally a subscriber, uh, you can hear lots more like this by subscribing at debunkingeconomics.com or become a supporter of Steve on Patreon. Uh, if you uh, support more than uh, $10 a month, then you get the podcast thrown in uh, as part of that package. I'm Phil Dobby. Uh, we'll 
catch you again soon next time with the Debunking Economics podcast. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.